Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded Plus podcast. This week my guest is Sean Maguire, the former Chief Executive of St Helens and a London Rugby League pioneer in the 1980s. Sean has a lifetime of experience in Rugby League and so this was a fascinating opportunity to get his insights into the past, present and future of the sport. So Sean, welcome to the podcast. What I like to do at the beginning of all of these things is just get some sense of your, your own background in the game, how you came to the game or did the game come to you? Uh, thanks, Tony. Well, my, my background really is being from St. Helens and having a father who was a very, very passionate rugby league fan. My dad had started to watch the Saints, I think he told me in about 1936, and his love and interest in the game was uh, deeply strong, strongly communicated to all of us. So all my brothers and sisters became very keen Saints fans, and we would travel and watch, obviously, the team at Nosley Road in those days, and, and away, go to Challenge Cup finals, support the game, develop an interest in it, especially in its, its history and traditions that my father was also very keen on explaining to us why there were two forms of rugby, how St. Helens had become a great rugby league town, etc. So from my family and wider family, you know, cousins, aunts, uncles, etc., there was a real diehard kind of sense of being rugby league fans. And so from there, you became involved with, for those of us of a certain age, was was quite a famous amateur rugby league team in, in London, the Haunty Lambs. How did you get involved with that? And- well, that was that was fantastic experience. I, I, I went like a lot of people, particularly in those days, in the early 80s down to London with, for work, developed career. And I started playing actually for London Colonials, which was a team composed exclusively of Aussies and Kiwis. In fact, they called me the honorary POM. I was going to say, how did the lad from St. Helens get in there? Yeah, it was, um, uh, I forget actually how it started, but but I played for them, really enjoyed that. But a local team started in the part of North London I was living in called Hornsey Lambs, founded by a guy called Ken Johnson. And it took off remarkably well. We were able to run two teams at one time. We had a very strong first team. There were lads who, like me, had played rugby league. I played rugby league at university at Liverpool and had played uh, in, in for actually formed the amateur rugby league with the Northern Division, all the rest of it. And there were other guys from my background, supplemented by Aussies and Kiwis and a couple of Irish guys, actually, who played Gaelic games. And we had a very, very lively social scene in the Crouch End part of North London. And for a brief period, it really became quite a trendy thing to do, to be involved with Hornsey Lambs. Not something you can normally say about rugby league. To what extent? Because the 80s are quite interesting, because you, in, in 1982, the Kangaroos came over, yeah. gave a bi- big boost to the game. The game had also got back a lot of its health that had disappeared in the 1970s. Do you think the Lambs were really a beneficiary of the kind of general upswing in the fortunes of the game, or was it something different that was going on in London? I think it was. I think that did play a very significant part in it because I can remember once going to play another very good amateur rugby league team in London at the time called uh, South London, who again had a big Kiwi and Aussie contingent. Um, reading the paper on the way to the game, I think it was the Observer actually on a Sunday, which was talking about rugby league being being now more cooler to be involved in rugby league than rugby union. I mean, in those days, Tony, test matches at Wembley, the 80s, were getting crowds of 70,000 for Great Britain-Australia games. Yeah, uh, there, yeah. The game, the, yeah, the game seemed to have a real moment in the sun. There was a, Ellery Hanley was interviewed on London TV because he was the, the sort of sports personality. Uh, do you remember this, that the American football franchise was using to front its attempts That's to right. get? Martin Afire was probably the most famous rugby player in the country at the time. Yeah, yeah, and so American football was trying to cash in on the popularity of Ellery in the, in the late 1980s, wasn't it? 
absolutely, which would be very hard to believe, you know, some other times in the game's history. But there was that moment in the sun. London was coming out of the um, the recession that had been in the in, earlier in the the eighties. There was just a feeling of of a big upswing, and rugby league seemed to to be part of that. And Hornsey Lambs, I think, in London terms, symbolised it. And uh, in fact, it's out of Hornsey Lambs that London scholars really came because. Hector McNeil, who's the chairman of the Scholars, I mean, I played with him at the Lambs. That's how he got his first experience of playing rugby league in London. So that, at least that history has continued to some extent. What was what was the relationship of the Lambs and the other teams in London with Fulham? Because obviously Fulham had been established as an expansion club in 1980 and was initially very successful, got good crowds to uh, Craven Cottage where they then played. Did, did the Lambs have any connection? Did the other amateur clubs have any connection or was it kind of just two separate worlds? Two separate worlds. It would be completely wrong, I think, to give people the impression that somehow any of this was centrally directed. These were groups of enthusiasts who came together and made big sacrifices to play rugby league because I mean we had some really good players who could easily have walked into better resource rugby union clubs where there was a clubhouse and better shower facilities and a more organised fixture list and all the other benefits of a well-established community club and in fact two of the most fearsome teams in the London League at the time were Fulham amateurs and Fulham travellers who tended to attract a lot of people who would have looked like extras from Minder uh, who were all but had all, had all started to follow the game through Fulham but I don't think that filtered down beyond those two clubs to any in any materially significant way to the amateur scene in London. Because I, I think this is quite an interesting question because it's, it kind of uh, hits on one of the perennial themes of rugby league throughout its life, and that's the question of expansion. And yes. Fulham, uh, as I said, were initially quite successful and got a lot of publicity and their crowds uh, were very healthy in those early 1980 days. But obviously, as we now know, the club, which is now the London Broncos, has gone through tremendous changes over the past 30, what, almost 40 years. Uh, and it's never really reached the heights of those initial two years. Do you think there's any conclusion that can be drawn from that? Because the obvious other thing, which obviously you know as well as I do, is that the 1980s also saw lots of other expansion clubs from Carlisle in the north, Cardiff in, obviously Cardiff, strange places like Kent uh, with Kent and Victor and Mansfield with Mansfield Marksman. Scarborough Pirates. Yeah, that's another one, yeah. They were amongst that list. I think that Rugby League in London, I think, has a, has had a continuing presence there. I think I'm right, sorry, from the kind of Acton and Wilson days in the 30s. I think they've all, yeah. there's always been some, you know, even if it was just one or two little club sides playing out of a pub, hanging on for dear life, etc. There was a guy called Gordon Anderton, I don't know if you remember that name, who had been in Rugby League in London since the 50s. He used to referee some of our games. And so at least there is some sense of a... A little bit of a tradition, even if it's tiny, given the size of London being the biggest city in Europe. But I think what it tells, uh, what it should tell rugby league people uh, more profoundly is that expanding our game is a very difficult thing to achieve in a sustainable way. And that too many of those examples that you've just quoted, I think, were done in a kind of blaze of wonderful enthusiasm. But their chances of survival were very, very slim. And I think there are some lessons that the game needs to learn about that because people, I think, sometimes uh, make the mistake of, of uh, using uh, the, the game in France and talking about that as being an expansionist project, particularly when Catalan Dragons first came in, because they don't really understand that we've had rugby league in France since, I think, I think it was 1934. At one yeah. time, it was the biggest, biggest code of rugby in France by a very long way until the Vichy government banned it at the, in 1941. 
So when we talk about expansion, I think it's very important that we do so in a more measured and thoughtful way and ask ourselves why we want to see, if you like, any kind of expansion at any price. Particularly, I think something my dad used to say to me all the time was when some great Heartland clubs like Rochdale and Swinton and Oldham, etc., have fallen almost at times nearly out of existence, but we think we can expand to new areas. And I think that's a very flawed way of looking at the history and the future potential of rugby league. One of the problems with, well, it's not really a problem, but one of the things that's always happened in rugby league is that there's always been a debate between mm. those who identify as expansionists and those who identify as, shall we say, heartlandists. And I, I kind of think that's that's the wrong way to view the debate because I think most people in the game would like to see the game expand to new places. But in a sense, it's not really about... In a sense, that's wishful thinking. It's I don't think the game has ever taken a balance sheet of these attempts to expand or really figured out what it means by expansion or where it would like to expand, how it would like to expand. So I... I think, I mean, I think, which I think is, is what you're getting at. I mean, it's, it's... I think that it's, I completely agree with you. And I think that image of a balance sheet of, you know, assets and liabilities that the game's got uh, would be a very sensible way to approach this. I can't think of any other sport uh, in which there is this, there has been this perennial desire to grow its geography, because that's really what we're talking about. I don't think it happens in other sports. Uh, I, I, I'm thinking the other day, for example, about a sport like I know that you've written about recently, Gaelic Games. I know that it's played in other places than Ireland, but I don't think the central authority is terribly bothered one way or the other whether it, whether it is, because at least it's a national game there with many of the advantages that we don't have. But our geography in England was essentially established at the time of the Great Split in 1895. It hasn't changed very much since then. And it might be that we have to acknowledge that there are certain very significant social and historical reasons why that is the case and and build an expansionist program rooted in that reality. I'm from St. Helens and as you know Tony you don't have to go far down the road to towns like say Berska which is only 50, no one's heard of rugby league. You know we sometimes I think slightly flatter ourselves for very obvious reasons because it's a good shorthand description to describe rugby league as a northern sport that brings with it all sorts of problems, I think, particularly with the growing north-south divide in this country, another economic and social thing. But actually, it's not true. We're a, we're a, we're a sport that's played in certain pockets of the northwest of England and, and West Yorkshire and Cumbria. But you're a Yorkshireman, as you know. If you went up to Richmond in North Yorkshire, I'm sure that the interest in rugby league would be, um, should we say, limited. Well, even if you go slightly a few miles south of Wakefield, um, completely yeah, socket, yeah, that boundary there's, a, there's a, a mental boundary between Wakefield and Barnsley where all yeah. of a sudden you cross into soccer territory and nobody, nobody's ever seen an overball and it's incredibly difficult to change that so I think that expand, and I was you know, deeply involved one of the happiest times of my life certainly playing rugby league and being involved in, in the Hornsey Lambs I went on then to, to coach the Met Police rugby league team as a matter of fact great times because there was that wonderful sense of being a pioneer of being different to other people too it was a sort of badge of difference but i'm not sure that that's that 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 tells you anything about establishing professional teams because i think that's what we're talking about professional sports teams playing rugby league in other parts of, of england it's very very difficult and it may be that some of the recent developments that are, that seem to be happening, uh, Toronto Wolfpack being an intriguing example 
offers a key as to what's required when trying to expand rugby league, because it may be that other virgin territory where there are no prejudices against rugby league, there's no historical or social baggage, is actually, ironically, mad though it sounds, is the way to go. Yeah, I think you've, um, I think you've got a very strong point there, because uh, one of the things you said earlier was that the um, essentially the geographic template of rugby league was set at the split and in the process of the split that took place over the next four or five years. And I think that's true of all sports. If you look at where sports are today, the main rugby, rugby league, rugby union, soccer, where their strongholds are today, they're exactly the same places as where yes. they were in 1914. Yes. And basically, the First World War froze the development of sport in Britain to what it was at that point. The other point that we often forget about in rugby league, and I, which is ironic because everybody in rugby league knows that it's more than just a game. It's about your identity, how you Absolutely. see the world and everything. Yeah. But that's also true for other sports as well. Just because rugby league people feel that strongly, it, it doesn't mean to say that a football fan or a rugby union person doesn't feel as strongly about their game too. That's a, at a professional level, because I think rugby league has done pretty well at expanding at a non-professional community, amateur level, call it what you will. But at a professional level, where you want people to pay money to come on a regular basis to watch a team, they need something more than simply what a great sport this is. It's got to mean something to them, their family and their community. And that's something that's very difficult to uh, to recreate afresh. It's extremely difficult to recreate afresh, Tony, because imagine that someone decided that there was whatever sport they represented, that there was no professional team from that sport in Leeds or Warrington or or St. Helens or whatever. And they thought because of the absence of it, they could simply bring it there. When you put it like that, you realise how crazy that sounds. There's no, there's no professional rugby union team in Southwest Lancashire except for sale. So why don't we just start one that would be in the middle of this cluster of rugby league towns, Warrington, Wigan, Saints, Lee, etc., because it'll be successful because there isn't a current rugby. It's madness. It just yeah. wouldn't work. We know it wouldn't work. If you wanted to set up a rugby union team, a professional rugby union team in Yorkshire, in a place where there's a huge interest in rugby, long tradition of rugby, where there's no top level uh, rugby union being played, why not put a team in Hull? And I yeah. think as soon as you put it in those terms, you realise how almost impossible it is for sports to expand into places where other sports have deep, deep roots. You know, what you referred to the balance sheet argument earlier. We, we have done this many, 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 many times in the past. I mean, I think when Acton and Wilsden, I hope I'm getting this right, Tony, because, you know, you'll put me, you certainly tell me if I'm wrong. I think didn't one of the London teams in the 30s that were both backed by kind of sporting entrepreneurs recruit George Napier, who was then the All Blacks fullback. Yes, yes. Because they thought this would be such a coup that people would be turning up in such huge numbers and it didn't work for all the reasons you've said. And, and then I it did, transferred to Halifax where it did work. Where it did work, strangely yeah. enough, because Halifax, you know, is a heartland club where people Yeah, they understood the his skills, yeah. One of, one of the most interesting examples of, of these difficulties recently has been the move of Wasps Rugby Union Club from North London, pretty successfully, to the Rico Arena in Coventry. That, and I think that illustrates, if you like, the need to have the kind of resources and the background and the money and the marketing machine and the brand values, etc., that they have, that we simply don't. Even if we thought that would be a good idea, 
we simply cannot achieve it because we don't have the resources to achieve it. And I think that's one of the other problems that the game faces that's very, very rarely discussed, that most of our great clubs, with probably the exception of Leeds, are in economically disadvantaged areas, often smallish towns, which suffer from all sorts of economic and social problems. So they don't even have the benefits of very vigorous local economies like, you know, their equivalent sister towns in the southeast, for example. Yeah, so, I think that's something that we often forget, that the the dire straits that a lot of people in the north are in and it, the fact that our tra- the traditional industries that the game was based on have gone. And a lot of the towns, I mean, some of the ones you mentioned earlier on, like Oldham or Dewsbury and Batley, these are really very socially deprived areas where to imagine that we can, uh, you know, where it's it's... It's not a surprise that the clubs struggle very badly because of finance, because those towns do, those communities do. So where um, where are they going? We to have those problems. To, yeah, we we have problems to overcome that many soccer clubs or rugby union clubs have no conception of. You try and go and generate the kind of sponsorship revenue levels that modern professional sport needs if you're going to compete with rugby union soccer. Uh, as well, cricket, tennis, golf, uh, boxing, darts, snooker, and all the other leisure options that people have now that they didn't have, you know, even quite recently because of, you know, the, the, the availability of mass entertainment at home, the, the range of options people have got, easier foreign travel, Ryanair, cheaper way, holidays, etc. We really are competing in a very tough marketplace for people's interest and their cash. And if you're doing it from the basis that we're doing it from, it is extremely difficult. Why, why don't we attract the same sponsors that Rugby Union attract? Well, if, if, if anyone who's ever been in one of those jobs will tell you very quickly why, because the people who've got the marketing budget won't invest it in Rugby League because they don't think they'll get the same bang for their buck. It's not always anti-Rugby League prejudice. There is a level of that. I think that's diminished a little bit amongst the kind of people taking some of those decisions in big businesses. But it would be very difficult to try to persuade someone to be the sponsor of the English Rugby League team at the same rate they pay for sponsoring the English Rugby Union team for reasons that I think we need to confront rather than shy away from or blame blame on exclusively on a kind of anti-Rugby League prejudice. It's just exceedingly difficult. And, and we're also, Tony, you know, with the minority sports station that in its coverage in the last couple of weeks that I've looked seems to me to be devoting even uh, less resource to Rugby League. Th- these are serious problems that we have to overcome before we think about expanding. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I don't want to... We're, we're going to have to wrap Sorry, up shortly, yeah. but... Yeah, no, no problem. I, I, I don't want to end on a completely negative note, because I think you know, <laughs> there's, there's two other things. I think rugby league has to face a lot of these problems throughout its history, because, you know, the, the Great Depression in the 1930s, the collapse yes. of industry in the 1960s. And I think that it's a tribute to the game, and the pe- particularly the people within the game, that it has managed to survive. Because when you look back and look at the institutions that were around in 1895, whether it's banks, businesses, industries, whatever, even nations, a lot of them don't exist anymore. A lot of them died a long time ago. And I think it's a tremendous tribute to the people involved in the game, at the grassroots of the game, that they've kept that flame going. And I think that Rumbling has grappled with these problems before. There's a new set of problems that I think we have to deal with now. But nevertheless, I think that, you know, as usual, I think the game will eventually get a handle on some of this stuff. Maybe not as successfully as we'd all like, but nevertheless, I'm kind of, I'd like to bend the stick just to kind of put our current problems in that broader context. I, I think I, I agree 
with everything you've said, and I am as passionate a rugby league fan and propagandist as I ever was. I think that the, 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 there are two things. The first one is that I don't think there's anything wrong with having the conversation we've had about the need to, to think very carefully about what we mean by expansion, what we think it will cost, how we'll achieve it, and what its benefits will be in a more organised and planned yeah. way. I think that's just sensible and would be very much uh, in the kind of uh, world view of the people who are rugby league fans in the, in the kind of towns that we're both from. And, but the second one is that what's kept this game alive are its inherent qualities. And uh, I, I, I always think that the, the, the sheer structure and nature of the game, 13 men playing, not crowded with lineouts and unnecessary kind of breakdowns of various kinds, just the sheer quality of the game is the greatest gift it's given to British sport. That's what's really kept it going. And it's always very interesting to me when you've played you know, um, uh, reasonable, even amateur rugby league and the lads who came from rugby union to have a go. And there were quite a flood of them when I was in London because of, you know, they quite a lot of them just thought they'd like to try and play rugby league. How challenging to play and difficult they found it. And they realised it's a game that requires tremendous athleticism and skill, the courage and all the other virtues that we attribute to players. But it remains the greater version of the rugby code. And it's just been locked in a very difficult set of historical circumstances. And all I think I'm saying, and I think a lot of people like me, is let's just review on that balance sheet basis where we can go with it to give it another great 120 odd years since its foundation. Excellent. I couldn't agree more. On that point, I'm going to adjourn. Uh, I'm not going to end it because there's a lot of other things I wanted to talk to you about, particularly your time as an official in Super League and the entrance of the Catalan Dragons into Super League. But we'll, we'll leave that for another time. Thanks so much for being on. This has been an absolutely fantastic discussion. I'll just wrap up and I'll say to people listening, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Rugby Reloaded podcast. If you want to follow me on Twitter, my name is at Collins Tony. Sean, are you actually on Twitter yet? Oh, no, do you know well. what? <laughs> Perhaps as I've been ranting and raving about the myopia of rugby league officials, no, I'm not on Twitter. Stay, stay clear from social media. Well, that's not necessarily Probably a good idea. That's not yeah. certainly a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. If you want to find out more about the history of uh, Rugby League, Rugby Union and the other Oval Ball codes, take a look at the Rugby Reloaded website at www.rugbyreloaded.com. So until next week, thanks for listening.